the things I love about um, being at CVPC and being your pastor is um, I get the privilege uh, to witness how God uses each and every one of us and our gifts differently. Um, it really is a team effort, um, everything we do here, uh, from the worship uh, to when we put on events. Um, it seems like the body just comes together in a way that's beautiful, um, that reflects the goodness of God in each and every one of us. I mean, RYM, as I said, wouldn't happen. I think the middle school camp wouldn't have happened if you all didn't give generously, if you all didn't pray, if you all didn't trust your children with us. Um, there's a whole bunch of things that happen in this church all the time that everyone is involved in, whether you know it um, or don't realize it. And sometimes that's hard to see because sometimes we get in our little corners um, and that's all we see. But, but there's so many things happening, so many things each and every one of you all are doing that is such a blessing to so many. And it's a beautiful thing. And as the pastor, I get to see that because I'm kind of like not only up front but behind the scenes. And so I kind of have that privilege of knowing what everyone is doing. And it's such a blessing to see. And so thank you all for your efforts. Thank you all for your prayers. Thank you all for giving the whole thing. I just praise the Lord for each and every one of you and what you do. And it's truly a blessing um, in the Lord. I assume at some point we'll get a, a report on the middle school camp. I'm sure that was amazing. My, my children came back refreshed and excited from being there. So hopefully we'll plan one of those soon. Um, all right. Uh, for those of you that are visiting, welcome. Uh, we've been doing a series on the Ten Commandments. And um, if you think of the Ten Commandments, uh, realize, first of all, the Ten Commandments are so important because it really um, establishes what the church is. You know, the church is an outpost of the kingdom of God. That's why we're here. We, we represent the kingdom of God. And what the Ten Commandments represent is the ethics of the kingdom. When we look at the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments show us who God is um, and who, uh, how we should love God and how we should love those around us. And I was thinking the other day, imagine a world where all the Christians, just all the Christians, did their best to follow the Ten Commandments. Not even unbelievers, but just Christians. If they took the Ten Commandments seriously enough to read it, to understand it, and to live it out in a world, we would have a transformed world just if Christians followed the Ten Commandments. Not even talking about unbelievers. That's the power of what we're reading and studying. And when we read it and we understand it and we know it, um, of course, that's not going to guarantee we obey it. But if we don't know it, guess what? We can't obey it, right? And so that's why we've been going through the Ten Commandments. Um, I, I like to start before I read it by giving you a poll number. You know, I find these uh, things online. And, um, and I found recently that in an informal poll, a great majority of people believe God helps those who help themselves is an actual commandment. Right? God helps those who help themselves is an actual commandment. And so it's amazing to me how much misinformation there are surrounding the Ten Commandments. I, I saw one person being asked to name a commandment, and they said freedom of speech. Without even blinking, they said freedom of speech. Um, I'm here to tell you freedom of speech is not a commandment. Okay? Neither is God helps those who help themselves. Um, those might be good principles, but they're not Ten Commandment principles. And so what I'd like for us to do is to read these Ten Commandments together. Hopefully you're memorizing them. I, 
every time I sit down with my children, well, every now and then we spot check, I said, hey, um, what are the Ten Commandments? And they, they try to go through them. So we're going to read verse 1 through verse 17, Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 through 17. Let's read it together. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Well, all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be taught unto you. Amen and amen. Well, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy Spirit, we have come here today um, because we need to hear from you. Holy Spirit, we, um, we rejoice at the testimony of our young people being able to go to RYM, the testimony of them hearing your word, the testimony of them fellowshipping, the testimony of them speaking about how your hand of providence worked in so many different unique ways to draw so many there. Lord, um, we come before you today as people hungry and needing to be filled. And so I pray, whatever the needs of our souls, may we say something said, sung, or done to remind us of your goodness and grace, something that we can take away as we go out into the world, that we might love you, love others, and serve them. Bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.
Well, uh, this is part two of a, uh, uh, a, a look at the second commandment. If you remember last week, we talked about the first commandment, uh, the second commandment, sorry. And we looked at just the first portion of the second commandment about not making carved image. And one of the things we said is that we divided it into three parts. We said that the second commandment um, has three sections to it. First of all, if uh, idolatry or if we break it impacts us, it has an effect on us. That's what we looked at last week. And the effect that it has on us is that we become what we worship. Whatever image you have of God, whatever you think God to be, whatever you imagine God to be, whatever box you put God in, that's what you'll become. If you envision a God that's all love, but not a God that requires holiness, then you will have a truncated view of who God is as he's revealed himself in his word. And so we talked um, quite a bit about that, and that's where we landed. Now, I want to talk about the two other portions of this commandment. And the two other portions of this commandment is what idolatry does to God, and secondly, what idolatry does to our families. Okay? So last week we looked at what idolatry does to us. We become what we worship. Depending on how we view God, we become like that. But idolatry also has an impact on God, and it has an impact on our family. So first of all, let's look at the impact that idolatry has on God. Notice with me in verse number 4 and 5. It says, the second commandment says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. And here it is. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. So what does the impact idolatry have on God? Well, it turns him into a jealous God. Now, for most of us inside here today, when we say the word jealousy, we think about the negative impact of jealousy. The kind of jealousy that's rooted in insecurity. Now, everyone inside here today has experienced what it's like to be jealous. Because in some sense, all of us inside here today battled insecurity, right? How many of us have uh, been at a school, you know, a graduation, and somebody wins an award, and we're sitting there thinking to ourselves, I should have won that award. That, that, that should be me. Or how many of us inside here today, you know, we've been blessed, you know, in some sense with a particular gift. Somebody else shows up on the scene with a similar gift or maybe a little bit better gift. And we get jealous of them because they're more talented than us. Or in our minds, we perceive that they're more attractive than us. Or in our minds, we perceive that they're somehow more gifted than us in a particular area. Well, what happens? We get jealous of them. There's a reason why we call jealousy the green-eyed monster. In the Bible, the greatest example of this negative form of jealousy is Saul and David. Think of how talented Saul was. Saul was the, the biggest, strongest, handsomest man in Israel at that time. He was voted as king. Everyone obeyed him and, and did what he said. But immediately when the women started singing, Saul had killed his thousands and David had killed his what? Tens of thousands. And what happened? He gets jealous. And, I'm, and every time I read that text, 
I, I say to myself, why are you jealous? You killed a thousand people. Like, like you're an incredibly talented person. But, but one of the things you notice about in the text is Saul was an incredibly insecure person. Insecure. To be insecure means that we don't rest in the gifts and talents that God has given us. Instead, we always want what someone else has. And therefore, we become jealous. And, and let me say this too. We need to be careful with jealousy. Because jealousy can turn quickly into envy. And jealousy and envy are different. See, jealousy says, I just want what somebody else has. But envy says, I not only want what somebody else has, I don't want them to have it. And envy can even lead for you to cause somebody else destruction. Uh, Os Guinness, in one of his books on the seven deadly sins, retells a story of envy. I'm not sure if it's, a, if it's an actual story, but he tells the story of two slaves or two servants standing before a king. And they were going to get punished. And uh, the king looked at one of them and said, whatever I do to you, I'll do twice to the other person. I'll do double the punishment to the other person. And without saying anything, without even waiting or thinking about it, he says, put out one of my eyes. Because in that moment, he was so envious and angry of the other person that if the king put out one of his eyes, he knew that both of the eyes of the other person would come out. That's envy. It's rooted in insecurity. It produces jealousy. That's the kind of jealousy you and I are aware of. Well, can I tell you, that's not the jealousy of God. God's not insecure. He's not. If you look at the passage, God's jealousy is predicated on his idol, uh, and it predicated on our idolatry. Um, if you if you study the jealousy of God, if you go through the passage, by the way, again, I often say this: if you're looking for a Bible study, and this time I really mean it, if you if if you want a transcendent experience studying God's word, study the jealousy of God throughout Scripture. It, do you realize his name is jealousy? That's a part of his, a part of his character. And, and jealousy in the Bible means God's zeal for us. God's zeal for our love. It's rooted throughout scripture. It's a wonderful study if you're looking for something to study in God's word during your quiet time. But it's really a blessing for us to have a jealous God. He's, it's not rooted in his insecurity. It's rooted in his love. Listen to J.I. Packer in Knowing God. J.I. Packer says this. God's jealousy is not a compound of frustration or envy or spite, as human jealousy often is, but impair, appears instead as a praiseworthy zeal to preserve something supremely precious. That's God's jealousy. God so desires to be in union and communion with us that he's zealous for our love and for our attention, that exclusive aspect of his attention. And it's based, God's jealousy is based on a unique form of love that he has with us, right? Let me explain it this way. If you've been in the church in the South for long enough, someone has tried to hug you, right? That, that's just church in the South. Now, I went to church up North. Nobody ever tried to hug me. But I come in the South, people try to hug me. Now, in the South, hugging in church is not a unique or special form of love. 
because we all hug each other. But for those of us inside here today who are married, there are unique and special ways we love our spouse. If it's either a word or a look, but there's some way we uniquely show love to our spouse. So if my wife sees me hugging someone, she won't get jealous because she knows that's not a special way that I love her. There are other ways that I love her. And if she shows me, or if she sees me giving that unique expression and form of love to somebody else, she has a right to get jealous because that belongs just to you, to, to me and her. It's the same with God. When God sees us giving our, like the unique form of love that belongs to us, he gets jealous. What is that unique form of love? Well, notice the passage. In the passage, it tells us the unique form of love, and it's all centered around three verbs, make, bow down, and serve. The word make in this passage means to cultivate. It's where we get cultivation from. And the idea here, this verb is used elsewhere when it talks about us cultivating a relationship with God, a unique relationship with God that's separate from anybody else. Anyone inside here today who's married or in a relationship knows you have to cultivate a relationship. You have to work on it. You have to pray and read your Bible and walk with God. That's an exclusive relationship we have with God. We have to cultivate that. That's why make is here. Another one is to bow down. What does it mean to bow down to God? What does it mean to bow down to anyone? It means making our will subservient to the will of others. That only belongs to God. God alone, we should bow down to him and worship him. Why? Because only him deserves to have our will submitted to his will. And notice the last uh, aspect of this, which is serve. It means to carry out the will of another. All three of those verbs, make, bow down, and serve, belongs only to God. And when God sees us um, cultivating a relationship with someone else, submitting our will to somebody else, or carrying out the will of another, except him, he has a right to get jealous because he's zealous for us to love him and serve him supremely. That's what the text is saying. God's, God's jealousy is not rooted in insecure because he's insecure or he's controlling. That, the opposite of that is true. Old Testament scholar Chris, uh, Christopher Wright says that it is the most powerful evidence of his love toward us. That he gets jealous for our love. Now, you know, the doctrine of God's jealousy could just seem like an esoteric concept, right? Like, how, Pastor Dennis, how, how do we see this as being practical? We see this being practical in three ways. I'm glad you asked, by the way. First of all, God is jealous for our justification. In other words, God is jealous for the lost. You, you remember in the New Testament, Jesus cleansed the temple twice. And right after he cleansed the temple, what does the Bible say? That his disciples looked at him and said the zeal of his father's house had consumed him. You know the word zeal there? means jealous. Jesus Christ is jealous for the lost. So much so that when he went into the temple and he saw the commodification of his, his father's house, meaning they had turned God into dollars and cents. 
They were trading and, and cheating the poor Gentiles that came in who just wanted to pray and know God. They were taking advantage of them. And Jesus said, this cannot stand. I want them to come to know God. And that zeal, that jealousy for the lost coming to know Christ, he, he, he just gets angry and he sits down and he plats this plat and he just starts beating people and throwing over uh, the, the money changers. Why? Because he wants people to come and know Jesus. They want people to come and know him. The jealousy of God is seen towards unbelievers. Brothers and sisters, that's why we need to be jealous for the lost. Every day we should be praying for our lost brothers and sisters, the lost in our community, to come to know Christ. Why? Because we have a jealous God who desires to be in union and communion with them. We cannot be indifferent over the plight of the lost. We simply cannot. Because our God isn't. Another thing that our God is jealous of is our sanctification, us coming to know him. In Philippians 1, through, uh, 1 6 through 7, uh, Paul says, He that begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. God is jealous for your sanctification. I heard a pastor once said that God accepts a sinner just the way they are, but he doesn't leave them there. Amen? He doesn't leave us there. Of course he accepts you in your alcoholism. But what kind of God will accept us as alcoholics and thieves and adulterers? And then says, okay, I've accepted you, and then I'm going to leave you in the very sin that was sending you to hell. That wouldn't be a good God. Actually, that wouldn't be the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible is jealous for your sanctification. He wants you to become like him. And so he's jealous. Another thing, and this is the last thing that God is jealous of, is God is jealous for our glorification. Jesus in John 14, 3 says, I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, there you will be also. Now that came at a great cost to Christ because it came at the expense of the cross. You know, the Bible says that Jesus was zealous to go to the cross. He set his face towards Jerusalem because he set his face to the cross because it's through the cross you and I will be glorified. You know, Christian, we don't think about this enough. But this world is not our home. This world is not it. Yes, while we're on earth, we have to care for the earth. God instructs us to, to work and to provide for our family, to build homes, to be productive. But at the end of the day, all of this will be rolled up like a scroll. And one day, you will stand before God. And either you will hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord, or you will hear, depart from me, I know you not, you workers of iniquity. Those are the only two things you will hear. And what scripture says is that Jesus loves you so much. And he was so passionate, so zealous, so jealous for you to be with him in heaven that he has worked and strived on the cross, died, 
rose again, and sent his blessed Holy Spirit as a down payment for you and I's glorification. That's how jealous he is for us. To be with us in heaven. With him in the new heavens and the new earth. So that's the testimony of scripture. Now, before I leave this aspect of God's jealousy, I'll have to say this. Not only is God jealous toward us, do you realize God wants us to be jealous for his love? Oh, it's in scripture. Romans 11.1, 1, Paul says that the saving of the Gentiles was meant to make the Jews jealous. Jealous of what? Jealous of God's covenantal love. What? God's saving Gentiles? But that's our unique love. We should want to love him. You know, the greatest example of this in scripture, in my opinion, this is just my opinion, but I think it's rooted in scripture, is the Apostle John. I think it's like three or four times in the book of John, what does John say? John describes himself how? As the disciple whom what? Jesus loved. That's audacious. Like, like it's almost as if God loves me and he loves no one else. No one else matters. Because I am the disciple whom Jesus loves. Now, why did he say that? Because he was jealous for God's love. Didn't matter who was around him, he felt like he was the most loved person on the planet. Do you feel like that? I, I mean, really. Do, do you feel like you're the most loved person on the planet? It's not that Jesus didn't love other people. And it's not that Jesus didn't care about other people. That's not the point. He was so jealous for God's love that he felt like the most loved person on the planet. Nobody else matters. That's the kind of love that we should be jealous for, excited for. Now listen, a lot of people like Jesus. I meet people all the time. They like Jesus. If, if you read the New Testament, a lot of people like Jesus. They liked Jesus because he was a healer. They liked the things that Jesus said. They liked the fact that Jesus could give them food. They liked the fact that Jesus could heal them. They liked Jesus. But a lot of people didn't love Jesus. That's why after Jesus fed the 5,000, and then they came back to him, and he said, hey, um, now you have to eat of my flesh and my blood. And what did they do? Well, they walked away. That's why when Jesus says, if any man come after me, let him deny himself. Pick up his cross and follow after me. I'm going to die for you. Now I'm calling you to die for me. And what did they do? They left. Why? Because they didn't love him. They just liked him. You see, God calls us to be jealous for his love. Not to be, not to be passive about it but to actually be jealous for it, where we will desire it more than we would desire the love of anyone or anything else. That's the testimony of Scripture. Now quickly, um, we see what idolatry does to God, and I want to look at the last bit, what idolatry does to our family. Verse number five. God says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for the Lord your God, I'm a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation to those who hate him, but showing steadfast love to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, these verses are difficult ones, both to translate and to communicate. 
So I'm going to say four things, then I'm going to pray, and we're going to finish the service, and then if you have any other questions, come and see me. Right? That's how we're going to do this. Because I can't sit here for another 30 minutes and unpack it. I'd love to. But I don't want to put too heavy a burden on you. So I'm just going to give you four things. We're going to finish the service. If you have any other questions, come see me. Okay? So here's the first thing I want to say. In order for this text to make sense, you have to understand that God is a generational God. God is a generational God. Remember, he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is a generational God. And because he's a generational God, you expect him to punish generations. But at the same time, you expect him to bless generations. Why? He's a generational God. One of the things I love about CVPC, every time I come up here and I look over, I see six generations. Do you know we have six generations in our church? We have the silent generation. We have the baby boomers. We have the Gen X, right? We have the millennials. We have the Gen Ys. And then we have the alphas. Or Gen Z and then the alphas, right? Six generations in CVPC. Man, that's awesome. You know, in our, in our society today, and I might get in trouble for this, we, we praise multi-ethnic churches. I'm, I'm for multi-ethnic churches. Praise God. But you know what God also praises? Multi-generational churches. Because he's a multi-generational God. So you expect whatever sin and whatever righteousness happens within a church affects generations. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. The second thing is, whatever we model to our children, whatever we model to our children affects generations. Look, if you model righteousness in front of your children, that will impact generations. If you model unrighteousness in front of your children, that will impact generations. Now, let me, let me say a few caveats here. Number one, there's many godly people inside here who have unbelieving children. And, and my heart breaks for you. You know, one of the things about being a pastor that I was particularly nervous about is that I will have children that don't know the Lord. Man, that would break my heart. I spent all my life ministering and praying and loving on people, and my children don't know the Lord. But you know what? You should be just as concerned. But sometimes it just doesn't happen, and that's, that is under the sovereign act of God. But it's not too late. If you are in here today and you have children that don't know the Lord, it's not too late. If you've modeled righteousness in front of them, it will not depart from them. It will be in their minds. But that's what this text teaches. What we model to our children impacts generations. And by the way, notice I said modeled, not said. Because our children pick up on what we do, not necessarily on what we say. As some wise person told me a few months ago, more is caught than taught. Right? All right, that's the second thing. Here's the third thing real quick. This text does not teach generational curses. I grew up in a society that believed in generational curses. I grew up in the Bahamas. And in the Bahamas, if, if, you, if something bad happened to you, they would say, it's because your grandfather was a thief. I mean, my goodness, imagine that. Right? But that's not what this text is saying. This text is not saying that you are being punished, if something bad happens to you, that you will be punished 
for the sins of your father or your great or your grandfather or your great grandfather or whoever, right? That's not what this text is saying at all. By the way, Ezekiel 18:20 says, "The soul that sins, it shall die." Not not the soul that somebody else sin causes everybody else to die. That's not what the text says. The soul that sins, it will die. Which means your sin is what sends you to hell. I tell my children periodically, I say to them, God does not have grandchildren and great-grandchildren. He only has children. Which means this. They have to come to know the Lord themselves. That's what it means. They don't automatically become Christians because I'm a Christian. They have, you have to choose Christ for yourself. Every young person inside you today, you will have to choose Christ for yourself because the soul that's in it that dies. This text does not teach generational curses. What it does teach, though, is that what we model to our children matters. And here's the final thing I want to say. This text is a tremendous sign of God's grace. Notice the text. It says that because God hates idolatry, he gets jealous and he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the sons only to the third and fourth generation. But, but notice in comparison, he shows steadfast love to who? Thousands, by implication, thousands of generations. So far from being an austere God, far from being an impetuous God who just punishes people to the nth degree, he's a merciful God who breaks the cycle. And by the way, it's, it's God that breaks the cycle. And how does God break the cycle of brokenness in our families? There are some of you, you are first-generation Christians. How did God break that cycle? Through Jesus Christ. That's how he broke the cycle. The cycle isn't just broken because one day someone wakes up and decides to be good. Oh, no. The cycle is broken because Jesus Christ breaks the cycle of brokenness in families. Go through the Bible. Jesus broke the cycle of the Samaritan woman, saved her out of paganism. He broke the cycle of his own people, out of dead orthodoxy. Jesus broke the cycle of the curse of Adam in all of our lives. No offense to Adam back there, it's just a different kind of Adam, right? But that's what Christ does. He breaks the cycle. You know, in our society, we have spent trillions of dollars to curb generational poverty. Now, I'm not saying some of that money shouldn't have been spent, but it was spent. And today, we still have the broken cycle of poverty, brokenness in homes. And that's because we've missed the fundamental reality of the gospel, that the only thing that can break the cycle of brokenness in our home, from drug addiction to alcoholism to abuse to bitterness to racism to sexual sin, you go down the line. The only thing that can break that cycle it's the glorious reality of Jesus Christ, who came and died for our sins. Only Jesus can break the cycle that we see here. Only him. And that's why the power of the gospel reigns. And, and we see the fruit of that. I'll end with this. A few, I don't know if you all remember, in December, we baptized baby Boaz. And, and up front, they were right here. Up front, you had four generations. Great-grandparents, grandparents, parents, and the child, right? That's the blessing of this text. Don't you want that for your family? I know I do. 
But it could only come through Jesus. It could only come as I poured the, ba- the waters of baptism over that little child's head. I was reminded of the goodness of a text like this, that he saves to many generations because he's a generational God. We see it with all the families in here as well. Praise God that he's a generational God. What's the big takeaway? Big takeaway, I'll say this. If you want to you save your family tree, continue to plant the seeds of the gospel. Continue to plant the seeds of the gospel. Well, that's the only thing that will break the cycle. Let's pray. Father, man, I wish I had more time to go through this text. What a powerful text. Lord, your word is powerful. And um, we can never exhaust it. But I pray whatever questions are left in the people's minds, um, your Holy Spirit would lead them to seek out the answers. And I pray that as we continue to go through these commandments, each one might stir our affections to love you and love others more. In Jesus' name, amen.